ba do do ba do da do do ba do da 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 ba do da 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 beyond 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 Queer Stories. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Queer Stories. Today, you already know, our guest here is Dawn. Yay! (laughs) So Dawn is a queer storyteller who's in her last year of completing her PhD in counseling psychology. She specializes in working with the queer community and advocates for mental health through clinical practice, education, and research. She is also a researcher who focuses on gender expression in queer women and the impact it has on minority stress. Dawn is a passionate about storytelling and its ability to connect and validate people across identities, and she truly enjoys meeting others, hearing their stories, and facilitating connections. She's also one of your co-hosts for Beyond Queer Stories, so welcome! Hi! Hello. It's weird to be on this side of the interview! I know! <laughs> I mean, hopefully it's not going to be, like, too awkward for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, first and foremost, let me ask you the introduction question. What identities do you feel most influence your experiences? It's funny because when you said that, I'm like, oh, yeah, I should know this is the first question. (laughs) (laughs) So, two come to mind, one I'm more comfortable talking about and one I'm less comfortable talking about. So, I try and force myself to talk about both. One is definitely queer identity because that just like touches every single part of what I do, Mm -hmm. whether it's in school, at work, um, my clinical work, or just like in terms of like how I function socially. Mm -hmm. Um, My queer community is very important and it's also something that I speak a lot about. So it's always present, always there. Um, So that one I feel is the most obvious and the most at the forefront of everything that kind of impacts me. And the other one, as far as like impacting experiences, I think even though I don't talk about it a lot, the other one that's most impactful is like social class Mm -hmm. because it's invisible and at the same time, it's something that really impacts kind of the way I move through the world Mm -hmm. because I grew up in a home with a single parent with multiple kids at home and like a single mom like trying to make ends meet and also being a first generation college student. So like navigating a lot of things on my own with no one having any insight into how to do that. Cause I knew from a young age, I wanted to go to college, but I had no one around me who knew how to do that or knew how to financially process through any of that life. Um, so I stumbled through all of it really on my own. Um, and that's impacted me in a lot of ways. And I think that it's something that like, I don't hear a lot of people really talking about a lot, but it definitely has impacted a lot of my Yeah. Yeah. With that being said, how did you end up putting yourself and like going through college since you're a first generation with that? Yeah, I just did it and didn't really know what I was doing. (laughs) So initially, um, After high school, I went to community college Mm -hmm. and just started working full-time. I worked since I was 16. So I started working full-time and went to community college, like taking maybe one or two classes a semester and enjoyed that and was able to just pay for that out of pocket. But I didn't have anyone like encouraging me to go to college. Like Mm -hmm. my parents literally, when I told them I wanted to go to college, were like, why? Like, why don't you just get a job? 
And I was like, well, I want to be a psychologist and I can't do that unless I go to college. So, and they were like, are you sure you want to do that? Like, that's a lot of school and a lot of work. So I got like zero encouragement Mm. whatsoever. Like they were confused. I'm the oldest of my siblings. So like there was not even a sibling previous to me that even went to like get an associate's degree or anything. So they didn't get it. And like their generation and like the environment they grew up in, like they didn't understand it. So it was really like it had the motivation had to solely come from me, Mm. which was really hard. So, yeah, I put myself through community college and then kind of worked my way up in where I was working and started making more money. So when it came down to like having to leave that to actually pursue school, it was a big decision Mm -hmm. because I quit my job Mm -hmm. and decided to go to undergrad full time because I realized I was never going to finish if I was just taking like a class here and a class there. Like I went to community college for eight years. (laughs) Like who does that? (laughs) And it just wasn't moving fast enough. So I just figured it out Mm -hmm. and just kind of stumbled my way through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact that not only did you have like no encouragement with what you wanted to do sucks, but you took that lack of encouragement and you put that in yourself and you realized Mm -hmm. that you didn't need that encouragement. You just needed to do this for yourself. I think that not only strikes a chord with like several people who are first gen, but Mm -hmm. like several people who are like also queer and just like understand that this is for them, nobody else. And that like nobody else is going to discourage me from doing what I need to do Mm -hmm. to make myself happy and successful. And that's really, really cool. (laughs) The other question that I have is, it says here that your research focuses on gender expression Mm and queer women yeah, and the impact it has on minority stress. Mm -hmm. So that's like two things at one. But like, could you like elaborate a little bit more on like that too? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the reason why that's so important to me is because all of our identities impact how people interact with Mm -hmm. us right but I think the piece that we don't necessarily really talk much about is that what people are actually interacting with before they know anything about you is your gender expression like Mm -hmm. they're making assumptions about your identities so to me I really you know I thought about studying gender or studying sexual orientation and realized that the thing especially when people experience like microaggressions and things like that or even just like macroaggressions or hate it's because of assumptions people are making about them a lot of the times so i thought it was really important to study gender expression and then use that information to figure out what forms of gender gender expression are eliciting more negative experiences in people's lives and in what environments are those negative experiences happening mm-hmm. so that we can better understand how one's gender expression impacts the level of minority stress that they're navigating every day because really like when we walk throughout the world like we're kind of like making assumptions about everybody all the time like oh that person like has a queer vibe they might be queer or that person you know like even with gender like we that's what part of the reason that i identify as queer because i can like walk into a room and be like oh like i find these people attractive but that doesn't mean i actually know what their gender is Mm -hmm. so we're making assumptions on that. So I think part of my goal in research is to better understand that relationship, like how our gender expression impacts the level of minority stress we experience, the type of minority stress we experience. Mm-hmm. Dang. I don't think people also think about that. Like whenever 
I go about my day, I used to be this person who like never thought about that I made assumptions, but like you literally mm-hmm. are making assumptions about somebody every single day, like people you're walking down the street and just looking yeah. at. So the fact that that's something that you're looking into and like you're really passionate about is really important because then you're going to add another voice to that conversation and like mm-hmm. have data behind that as well and like yeah. show people this is actually a thing. Is that tied into your PhD as well? Mm-hmm. So like when you did the community college and when mm-hmm. you did like undergrad, like what made you want to move forward and do more of that then? Like what pushed mm-hmm. you to do that? I always knew I wanted to be a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And then once like I was old enough to figure out what that means, like in terms of college education, I realized I had to get a PhD. Mm-hmm. So that was always the end goal. But I really got into research when I was an undergrad, not related at all to anything I do now, but I enjoyed the research piece because I was always like a kid who asked a bunch of questions and wanted to understand. And that's part of why I wanted to go into psychology anyways. Like I would see adults doing things and I'd be like, this just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Like, why are they doing this? This obviously is not a good decision for them. Like I got that even as a kid, like, (laughs) you know, there's some history in my family of like negative behaviors and Mm -hmm. negative interactions so when I would see those things I would really question it and be like what makes people do this stuff I Mm want to know what makes people function in that way so I think that desire to have answers and even not even necessarily answers because research doesn't always give you concrete answers but to have a better understanding really drove that Mm -hmm. because once I got into research I'm like oh I can like choose my questions and I can make hypotheses Mm -hmm. and then I could do something to figure out if what I thought it was is correct, or if it's something totally different I didn't even see. Mm -hmm. And that to me in itself is just so fascinating. So I think just that curiosity about humans and about behavior really just like kept pushing me, Mm -hmm. even though my path was definitely not a straight path, Mm -hmm. like through college at all. I think that desire to get my PhD and to really have the opportunity to study human behavior and then like the queer community and the way I want to really just kept driving me to complete it well semi-related to that I guess I want to touch on a little bit the fact that like this is your baby this podcast (laughs) and like this PhD like everything you're doing you're nurturing it and you're like making sure you're doing it to the best of your ability Mm -hmm. for this podcast like Beyond Queer Stories what made you want to start doing this yeah so I got the idea for it when I was still in Champaign um, at U of I but I was so I felt so disconnected from the community there Mm -hmm. because when I was in Chicago I had like huge queer community and leaving that was really hard so I felt like I didn't have the support there to launch it but one of the things I complained about when I moved there was like the radio was terrible I hated it like (laughs) I literally stopped listening to music Mm -hmm. when I was in Champaign except for like my old music that I had saved and Uh I just like got really behind Um, because the radio stations were terrible Mm -hmm. so I started listening to podcasts and really got into them and really love storytelling podcasts. Mm. And as I listened to them, I like found myself wanting to hear more queer stories. And like there'd be one featured here on this one and on another one. And I'd hear them every once in a while or like some of them during like June, mm-hmm. during like Pride Month, they'll feature more frequent storytellers that identify within the queer umbrella somewhere. And I really wanted to hear more of that. So... I took that piece of it tied with like when I heard those queer storytellers, I wanted to know them Mm. as a person and Mm. not just hear their story. Mm. So I was like, well, what kind of format could 
have all of that included in it. So that's how kind of the format came about too, because I really appreciate storytelling. I think it's super powerful. I think it makes people feel connected and validated. And then being able to sit down with one person at a time and really get to know them, I think deepens that connection Mm -hmm. instead of just saying, okay, come on, tell your story. And then we're going to have another one right after you and another one right after you and have like five people per episode. Mm -hmm. But then you never really get to know any of those people. And that was important to me was to hear their story, but then also connect with them even deeper than that and like provide the space to make that connection deeper. Mm -hmm. So that's how this was born. And then once I got to Chicago, so I guess like that idea happened when I was in Champagne, but once I got to Chicago and started like reintegrating into the community, mm. I've written since I was pretty young too, but mm. hadn't wrote in a while and mm. started writing more in the past year or two and decided to write a storytelling piece and had gone to like some storytelling workshops and then perform my first piece. And literally like the day after that, I'm like, I have to make this happen. And I just like jotted down a whole business plan the next day when I was sitting in a meeting, I'm like, had the thoughts flowing. I'm like, I have to get this on paper. And then it just started from there. Then I started like making it happen. Yeah. You made it happen. <laughs> it's real. It's definitely so a thing. It's great. Yeah. Well, I don't want to like, put out a five-year plan but like where do you see this develop what do you how do you see this developing like yeah. maybe like next year like a few months then yeah i actually put i think like a one-year plan and a five-year plan in my business plan because i'm like okay to make this real like yes i need to dot down the steps of what it takes to make it happen now mm-hmm. but i also did kind of like say well what would the ultimate like long-term plan be mm-hmm. so like the one-year plan was to have sponsorship, Mm -hmm. to actually have some income generated from this because we know this takes up time and we do it (laughs) because we love it Mm -hmm. and we're passionate about it. Mm -hmm. But also the reality is we do a lot of other things and we need to pay our bills. (laughs) So that was part of the goal. Um, And then the other goal was to, and a lot of storytelling uh, podcasts have live shows, which Mm -hmm. I'd love to do a live show and bring together a bunch of queer storytellers and do like maybe pop-ups in a few mm-hmm. cities. And then also I'd love to go into the schools in Chicago and talk with queer youth and have storytelling workshops for queer youth. I think that would be great to like volunteer some time to have storytelling workshops for queer youth to really, I think it gives people power mm-hmm. to learn how to tell their story mm-hmm. and to have a platform to tell their story. And I think youth are in a very disempowered part of their lives mm-hmm. where like they don't have control over much, right? And especially queer youth, you know, who are going through um, maybe figuring out their identities and they're questioning a lot of things about themselves to give them the power to articulate that in a way that feels good for them and feels like then it would also give them connection with one another Mm. i think would be really amazing so i'd love to eventually make that happen my heart (laughs) (laughs) that's honestly like yeah i think i really hope and like pray and like my wish for this is like very similar to yours like this building and building and building Mm -hmm. a bigger community we're not only like giving adults a platform to share their story but also everyone within the queer community whatever age to like Mm -hmm. share their story and give them space like share their truth and it's really important for like several reasons yeah so if you don't mind we're gonna get into your story sure okay 
So the floor is yours. All right. My upbringing was anything but a traditional nuclear family. My parents divorced when I was five, and my sister was one. We moved out shortly after a fight that happened between my mom and dad at my sister's first birthday. We moved in with our aunt, my mom's sister, her boyfriend, and my two cousins. It was a tight squeeze in a small three-bedroom suburban house where we cohabitated as best as we could. Neither my mom nor dad hesitated to enter a new relationship right away, and soon my mom's high school sweetheart was around all the time. And soon the cycle of abuse picked up right where it left off. At first she was obviously in love, smiling, laughing, having fun. And eventually we all got a place together. My mom, my sister, and the man I'm going to call T. We were again living in a home with the appearance of a nuclear family, but it never had that feeling or sense of love. CT did not like me. My small, by this time, seven-year-old self reminded both him and my mom of my dad, and my dad was the enemy. This came out more later in my life, but T, I always saw it in his eyes. I saw the way they pierced through me with resentment that I never understood. I saw the way he coddled my sister, the innocent infant, stuck in an uprooted family while he seemed threatened by me, the child who was already verbal trying to make sense of the chaos. The years that followed were filled with yelling, fighting, white powder lined up on the kitchen table as he snorted, unapologetically glaring at me. I wondered why he seemed to hate me so much. Maybe he knew I saw through the fake love he doled out to my mom. Maybe he knew that although I was young, I knew that this wasn't what love looked like. One of the most memorable moments came after T and my mom got married and had my brother, the one positive product of their union. My brother has overcome the odds of being born to an abusive father and struggling single mother. He bears his father's chiseled jawline as well as his difficulty in controlling his anger, though my brother's learned to manage it better as he's aged. He also has my mom's striking blue eyes that are sensitive to the pains that the world inevitably places on our shoulders. But one of the days that's etched in my memory happened when my brother was an infant. It began the way all of these memories of chaos began, with fighting between my mom and T. This time she felt enough of a threat that she engaged her flight instincts and grabbed all of the kids and raced to her car, a beloved Chevy Camaro. She piled us all in with no time for seatbelts and barely time to make sure that the doors were shut. T was quick on our heels as he jumped on his motorcycle after us. I felt my mom's fear thick in the air, like a weight slowing us down as we raced down the street. I looked out the window and saw T getting closer as he yelled for us to pull over so he could beat my mom for leaving. He swerved toward us, threatening us as my mom desperately tried not to run the car off the road. Thinking back, I wonder where the other drivers were. Did anyone call the police? Did anyone want to help us? When you're in the midst of fighting for your life, the surroundings blur and all the focus is just on survival. I don't remember a view of anything but his motorcycle tire getting larger as it sped toward our car, my fingertips gripping the brown leather seats, holding tight as the car jerks side to side, while my mom tried to stay on the road but also avoid his desire to crash into us, his obscenities being yelled into the window. My mom persevered, and he eventually gave up and stopped following us. I believe it was because he noticed that she was driving toward the nearby police station. When she felt it was safe, she ushered us all inside to file a police report. I remember feeling proud of her for trying to seek help. I remember hoping that they would keep us safe. Unfortunately, those who are positioned to keep us safe don't always have the most compassion. Unfortunately, they don't always see the fear in your eyes and see that sending you back out the door may mean putting your life at risk. A woman's fear is not always taken seriously. He hadn't technically hurt her. Here she was in a police station, heart racing, tears in her eyes, hands shaking, yet they couldn't offer her anything. They couldn't protect her and didn't offer any solace to an abused woman with three kids. I'm sure that she felt defeated and hopeless. 
We left and she took us to the park in an effort to bring back a sense of childhood that we needed in our lives. I grew up fast on a mission to help my mom escape violence, and in this moment, she tried to give me back a small piece of innocence as she spun us on the merry-go-round. My long blonde hair whipped in the wind as I threw back my head and took a moment to try and feel safe in a dangerous world. However, the merry-go-round as it spun us and made us dizzy and stumble was actually just the perfect metaphor for the chaos we experienced and the chaos that was yet to come. Thank you for sharing Mm -hmm. your story. I have a lot of questions, but I'm not really sure where to start. Well, first, I think you mentioned that you told your mom you wanted to share the story and your mom was cool with it. Yeah. How did that whole situation Mm -hmm. end then? With that conversation? Yeah. Yeah. It was not what I expected it to be, Mm -hmm. I guess I could say. I was really nervous to share it with her, but I knew I couldn't say it on the podcast without at least checking in with her Mm -hmm. um, because it's really – it's her story but told through my eyes. Mm -hmm. But really at the end of it, she said she felt it was important to be told. And now I'm going to get emotional. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She said that if sharing it could help one person, then it was worth it. I'm sorry, I'm going to make us both cry. It's okay. It's fine. Because um, she knows like how hard it is to leave domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So she said that she appreciated the way I told the story. Because I think like her fear when I first told her how – when I first told her that I wanted to share this story before I read it to her, mm-hmm. she, I believe, thought that <laughs> – I think she thought that um, she she holds a lot of guilt Mm. about all of this. Mm -hmm. And I think she thought that the story was going to be about my anger towards her Mm -hmm. and my resentment towards her about this situation. And after I read it and she realized that's not what I was holding on to, she had like a sense of relief. And we had never talked about any of this ever. We talked about it a lot when we were in it, and I was very young, but we never talked about it since. Mm-hmm. So I think it was, in a way, kind of healing for both of us to, like, acknowledge this happened to us because she very much connects it as, like, this happened to us because my siblings were very young, and I'm the only one – well, I mean, they might ha- – they have some memories, I'm sure, of some of it, but, like, I was the oldest, and I was the one who had conversations about it with mm-hmm. her. So it was – I think it was good for us to like put it out there and good for her to know like as an adult I can look back and have empathy for the position she was in mm-hmm. and hopefully help her let go of some of that guilt. Mm-hmm. So with the story itself and with T and your mom and mm-hmm. the mirror around, how like how did that end? Did mm-hmm. she end up going back? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, like, when I think about that piece, it's, like, that event happened, and because, I would say, because back then, like, they wouldn't really do much for women who were in domestic violence, but I'm not even going to say that because it still happens now. Mm -hmm. Like, that was almost 30 years ago, now that you know how I don't hold (laughs) (laughs) on. That was almost 30 years ago, but really, like, especially with the Me Too movement now, Mm -hmm. I think... We're seeing more people try to talk about these instances where women are killed mm-hmm. by people through domestic violence or like exes or those situations happening. And a lot of it is because the police still won't help. Mm-hmm. Like unless something 
really terrible happened, they really just say they can't do anything for you. So she did end up going back. And these, this is one of like many instances. Like I've thought about writing consecutive pieces about some of these experiences because I could write a whole book of these stories because um, it went on for a long time. So she felt very helpless, you know, because they're like, well, we can file a report, but we can't really do much. Eventually you could get an order of protection, but then enforcing that is hard, especially when someone is under the influence of drugs. Mm. Like they aren't thinking rationally. They don't really think, oh, there's an order of protection. Let me not mm. go here. So we were still in it for quite a while after that incident. And you mentioned that, unfortunately, the case with your mom is still a case today. Like, mm -hmm. police don't really do anything mm -hmm. about that. And it's really unfortunate. Um, so with your mother and, like, that guy, mm -hmm. did she end up finally having to file a police report because, like, something ended up happening? Or did she just, like, leave at one point after she realized that this was no longer a healthy situation to be in yeah that's something i'd like to like go back and like ask her like what was that well we did briefly talk about it on the phone because kind of going back to what i was saying about like wanting to understand human behavior this was a big piece of why i wanted to go into psychology because mm -hmm. i just as a child, I just looked at my mom and kept saying, like, why are you here? Mm -hmm. Like, why don't you leave him? Mm -hmm. And she said, like, those conversations we had eventually helped her get the courage to leave. And even when we had this conversation, when I told her I was going to say this story, she was like, do you remember you're the one who helped me leave? Mm -hmm. And I do remember that. And I do remember those conversations. Um, but as a child, it was so simple to me. Mm -hmm. And it didn't make sense that this was a scary, dangerous thing to leave because mm -hmm. as dangerous as it is to stay in it, it's mm -hmm. also dangerous to leave because there's true retalia retaliation that can happen, mm -hmm. which is like why we see the stories of women's women who are murdered by people who they were victims of domestic violence to. Mm -hmm. And the police said, well, we can only do so much and they don't add another layer of protection. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, if the person comes after them, then it's too late. Mm. Um, but my mom was lucky that that didn't happen. You know, there was still a lot of back and forth and it wasn't easy. And then they had my brother together. So that made it more complicated. But she said it was those conversations with me as I was just making it sound super simple that eventually got her to leave. Though I know now as an adult, like that wasn't a simple decision. Mm -hmm. So with um, that incident, since you were the oldest at that time, mm -hmm. since... It seems like it was reoccurring. Did your other siblings end up understanding what was going on? And did you, like, end up having to explain that to them and, like, having to be that person for them mm -hmm. to, like, tell them that, you know, this isn't okay, but we'll get through it? Or, like, how yeah. did that, how did you have to navigate that at that age? I think that's, like, the strange thing is that I think sometimes when people are, like, co living a trauma, mm -hmm. it's rarely talked about. We never, like, I've never talked with my siblings about any of this, ever. Maybe my brother a tiny bit. Mm -hmm. My sister, not at all. I remember, like, talking to my mom because she was the one I was trying to push to leave. And, like, I remember one moment we were at a store or something and, like, he ran in the store to get something. And I literally was like, why don't you leave? Like, why are you staying with this? Like, this is not okay. But 
my siblings and I never talked about it. Like they were, they were really young. And then even as we got older, like that different dynamic between like me and my sister and him Mm -hmm. made it feel like there was like a barrier there too, because like he was really nice to her and he was really, he obviously didn't like me. And there's always this tension there. But I think a lot of times when you're like living in something that daily is traumatic, like Mm -hmm. The default is like if we don't talk about it, it won't be as bad. If we talk about it, it's gonna get worse. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how we functioned in it. I understand that a lot, and it sucks that that's the dynamic that you know had to happen for you all to just like get through it. With that being said, how are you and your mom now? We have more open communication now. It's interesting because like. I actually credit my brother a lot for us having better communication because we were not a family that like ever talked about emotions, ever really talked about anything. And like, as we all became adults, like he was the first one to like start saying, I love you to start like trying to like have conversations about even like positive emotion. Mm -hmm. And we were all so just distanced from that mm-hmm. our whole lives. I have a whole nother story about that. Too, <laughs> that like kind of relates to some of this mm-hmm. where like those things just were not spoken. But I think now since like my brothers kind of shifted that a little bit and then we've kind of made more conscious effort to have more conversations. Mm-hmm. It's brought us closer. So yeah, things are, are good between us now, but we've definitely had like our ups and downs mm-hmm. throughout all of this where things were like really hard and we really weren't getting along and like things, yeah, were pretty, pretty low at times. But luckily, like we kind of stuck through all of that mm-hmm. and got to a good place. Does your mom know that this situation kind of influenced you into going to psychology? Because I think that's really... Yeah, I think so i think i mentioned it when i talked to her about this but i don't think she realizes how impactful it was in that i don't know if she realizes that like this is like the thing that pushed me into Mm -hmm. psychology i mentioned that when we talked to her but like it was such like an emotional conversation something we've never had i don't know how much that part stuck out to her but i remember telling her like one of the positive pieces of this is i don't know if i would have pursued that if I didn't go through all that trauma Mm -hmm. because it really made me like deeply want to understand why people make those kinds of decisions and why people feel powerless in those situations. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she would even, because she kind of sees it as like a part of me and it is, I think, because I experienced it at such a young age, but she's always seen me as like driven academically. Mm -hmm. I don't think she really puts that piece together of like, this is part of what drove me. Mm Well, if you want to thank her, thank you. <laughs> this is a great way to do it. Yeah. I think a lot of the times when it comes to domestic violence, whether it be like emotional or mental or physical, a lot of people don't understand why they, the like victim in that case keeps going back or mm-hmm. like why they keep subjecting themselves to that or the people that they love mm-hmm. and you like mentioned that sometimes it's not it's sometimes it's more dangerous to leave the situation than to just stay mm-hmm. there and just like ignore the fact that it's happening mm-hmm. and i think that 
that in itself says a lot about how we try and process pain mm. and try and process just like traumatic events like you said with like this being an event that happened like it's not yeah. like you can't just like erase it you can't just like forget that it happened but mm-hmm. not talking about it kind of like helps the fact that it ha- that it happened right but like you even said like you and your mom are like talking about it now mm-hmm. but not as much as you and your siblings are talking about it right mm-hmm. well i've never talked to my siblings oh ever about it. no like never ever ever my brother a little bit but my sister never ever it's never been spoken out loud do you think that you ever will have a conversation about it with them or do you think they'll like listen to this and be like i want to talk to you about like that because it is like yeah still like even if it doesn't matter like how old you are that's still like a wound that's never gonna really heal because it mm-hmm. happens to all of you yeah so. and that's like the weird thing is that my fear in telling my mom this story before I talked about it on here to like kind of get her permission to do that. My worry was that I was going to re-traumatize her. And really she said she felt more of a sense of healing from it. So I think that's something that I need to shift in like the way I'm thinking about choosing to have or not have these conversations with my siblings because my decision to not talk about it, which I think like all of us kind of function under that is like, oh, if we talk about it, then it's going to bring it up and then they're going to hurt again and then they're going to feel mm-hmm. this, like, emotion that's really painful mm-hmm. and I don't want to bring them pain. But part of, like, part of all of this power of storytelling, right, is, like, to heal from that, to, like, take back the power in those situations mm-hmm. and tell your story and use that as a method of healing some of that pain. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be worth talking about but at the same time it's it's fucking scary to like think of bringing up a conversation like that with them it really is because even though i know how this happened with my mom i still really worry that that would bring something up that either like they would want to get rid of or they would want to like i guess wish that they didn't feel and like then hold resentment because i brought it up Mm -hmm. that's kind of like the fear that underlies it all but the more I do this, the more I realize, like, those conversations can be really healing and important. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that you end up having a conversation with them, like, eventually. Mm-hmm. Like, even though this is, like, traumatizing and, like, hurtful in, like, mm-hmm. several aspects, I think, like you said, like, having a conversation will open up the space to heal mm-hmm. from the situation. And hopefully they can understand that and see that perspective, too. Well, are you okay? Was this no, yeah. (laughs) This is actually the first story that I read at a storytelling event, Mm -hmm. and it was interesting because, like, I had written it and I brought it with me, and knew I was likely going to read it. So I like had practiced it at home and thought, like, oh, this happened so far in the past. Like, I wrote it and it was fine, and I'd read through it a bunch, but I hadn't read it out loud yet. Mm And so before I went, I'm like, I have to practice reading this out loud. Like, I can't just go into it, like, never having read it out loud. And I couldn't read through it without crying at first. And I'm like, oh, there's shit there that's coming up. Like, I didn't think that would happen because this was so long ago. Mm -hmm. And it helped me kind of, like, reprocess some of that, Mm -hmm. like, as an adult. Because, like I said, we haven't talked about this. So 
yeah, it was interesting to have to do that and process it. So now at this point, like I've read it so many times, like mm-hmm. I feel it doesn't come up as strongly. And I think that's part of the healing because then I get used to just like owning it as my story mm-hmm. instead of just associating it with the pain that's part of it. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. It's still hard. Like the part that is hardest for me to read is the scene at the police station because it's full of disempowerment. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that I always get choked up at Mm because I'm like, fuck, what what was that like? Mm -hmm. Like I can only imagine the sense of just powerlessness in that situation. And so many women go through that. And – I think that's why that part, like, even though all of it is terrible, that part pulls at me because when women try and get help and mm-hmm. they try and pull themselves out and then they get told, like, well, where's your black eye? Where's your bruises? Like, where's all the evidence? And if they don't have that, but they know, like, oh, I had that last month or I had that last week, but this time I don't have it because I ran out of the house fast enough. Like, what the fuck? Like, mm-hmm. and you're telling me you can't help me? Mm-hmm. That happens to so many women. Mm-hmm. And that's just not okay. So when I get to that part, like, I get emotional because, like, I'm angry and I'm sad and I'm, like, I feel like I'm channeling all of that energy from all of these women who have walked into police stations and just, like, got nothing out of it and had to, like, turn around and go back to that home with that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the hardest part because I know how real it is for people. Yeah. I feel like we could have a whole episode about this, like this in itself. Yeah. Because this is, it's not like it just, it's not a singularity for this to happen. Mm -hmm. Like like you said, like women go through this every day. Like you don't have to have bruises on you. You Mm -hmm. don't have to be like black and fucking blue to be a victim of abuse. Like that's not... That's like a movie, like a TV show thing. Like, you don't have to have all those things Mm -hmm. to be in need of help. And the fact that it was, like, X amount of years ago that this happened and, like, I can turn on the news and, like, see it still happen today Mm -hmm. shows that not only do we have a long way to go, but there were so many women that didn't have a chance to live their life because people didn't believe in their trauma and hurt. Mm -hmm. So I'm very glad that your mother got out of that situation mm-hmm. and that she had all of you and you are all here today to tell yeah. this story because it's not like a fucking joke and it makes me really frustrated because like not only do like like you you are one person that I know of that's been through this I've seen my friends who've also like gone through this like mm-hmm. I had a friend whose partner came to my job and like ran the back and like mm-hmm did that to her and she had to come back and act like nothing happened yeah and like we would all be like why don't you leave why don't you do this why don't you Mm -hmm. leave it's just like oh no it's fine it's okay it's fine we're getting a house together we're gonna get a car together it's gonna be Mm -hmm. fine it's like you have to i didn't really understand that my reasoning for you to leave even though it may be it may make sense it may be the same way that you're thinking you're going through it like Mm -hmm. you're the one who's experiencing this every single day yeah so it's really easy for a person who's not experiencing experiencing it from that perspective to say well you can just get up and leave it's not that hard it's like no there's like layers to this there's Mm -hmm. different 
situations that have happened that can also happen again if I choose to leave like you don't get it right and I think that the only way for people to understand that is talking about it like not Mm -hmm. just like putting a picture on the news saying this person did xyz you have to tell the reasoning behind why these things are happening so people understand that it's not a singularity it's not like oh well Mm -hmm. he only did it one time it's not going to happen again like typically these things happen like reoccurring and like typically when that happens it's like life or death situation for whomever is in the situation itself so i am just glad that you're not a statistic in the situation and that you all like took this and made something of it and you're here to tell this story it's for everyone else who can hear it to say that you know it's there's ways to get out because you can do it yeah that's my commentary (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it like takes a lot of like support from others like when people do leave it it can take so much planning Mm -hmm. to figure out how to leave safely Mm -hmm. and i think that can be really tricky like when my mom did finally leave we moved in with my uncle so we didn't you know, move in somewhere where it was just her. Mm -hmm. Like She moved in with her brother. And again, we went like kind of back to the beginning where like we had lived with her sister and my cousins. Like we moved in with my uncle and um, his wife and kid. And we were again like in this small house, two families living in a house meant for one family, Mm -hmm. trying to all squeeze in this space. But in a way that was a protective environment because then if it was just us, that would have probably been a lot more dangerous. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And we did eventually, like, move out on our own, but we had to, like, start there until we got to a space where it felt safe mm-hmm. to be able to be on our own. It takes a lot. I mean, it takes a lot to get out of situations like these. It's not just, like, cut and dry. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, like, the support from, like, friends and family, like, really helps. And that's pretty much what people need to understand when they hear situations like these. Like, you can't just say one thing and expect it to get done overnight. Like, you said, a lot of planning goes into it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really know how to end that. But, like, I'm really glad that you shared this story. And I'm really glad that you felt the need to share this story. You asked your mom and your brother and everyone Mm -hmm. else who was involved that needed to hear it because it's important. This is something that people don't really think about because they're not in it but when you're in it it's like Mm -hmm. stuck with you yeah so i'm glad that you felt confident enough to share it on here thank you (laughs) yeah i hope people you know anyone who's like ever been in that and hears this you know feels some sense of connection or validation and like knowing that other people have been there and like knows what it's like and and i thought it was important to share like the child's side of being a part of this because we don't I don't think I've ever heard that version of the story Mm -hmm. of domestic violence like it's always the person in it right which is important important to be told but I think the child's perspective is there too and we don't always hear that Mm -hmm. so it was interesting to kind of go back to that world and go back to that experience and remember what it was like to be as just like a kid. So, I don't know if you have anything you'd like to mm-hmm. share, but 
this is oh. time for our shameless plug. Yay. So please, if you have anything that you're doing, making, interacting with, or being involved with, please share. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one of the things coming up that will be not too long after this comes out, actually. So on April 25th, I'm going to be sharing a different story at um, a storytelling event that is going to be in Chicago at the Center on Halsted. Mm -hmm. um, it's a storytelling event that's produced by Ada Chang, who is a wonderful storyteller in the Chicago community. And it's called Am I Man Enough? So it's a series that focuses on toxic masculinity. So... The show starts at 7, and that's going to be April 25th at the Center on Halstead. So if you are interested, come hear a different story that I will be telling that night. Oh, I know what I could plug. Go for it. I have this podcast <laughs> that I would really like to plug. You might have Please heard share. of it. It's called Beyond Queer Stories. It's really great. You all should listen and keep listening. Um, but seriously, uh, if you don't already mm – -hmm. Please follow us. Yeah. Beyond Queer Stories. Yes. On Facebook and Instagram. Mm -hmm. And Beyond Queer Pod on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And almost most importantly, if you listen on iTunes, which like the majority of our listeners are on iTunes, nice. please rate us yes. because then people find our podcast easier and we want you all to hear it. And so I've been looking at the countries that listen the mm -hmm. most, like outside the US. And you know what? Like, crept up in the rankings over the last month japan yes so hi all of you listening in japan i was so excited so yeah after the u.s it's japan so That's hi so japan listeners cool. we're happy you're here uh, please listen please like share our story share everyone's story that you hear if you want to be on our story we also take skype calls so. yeah you don't have to be in chicago so our form is linked on our Instagram. If you look at our profile page, there's a link. That link will take you to the form to be featured. Also on our Facebook, if you click the sign up button, that'll take you to the form to be featured. Yeah, we've done a couple of Skype sessions that went really well. So we like pretend you're here in the room with us and so see each <laughs> other's faces. And it's really great. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have a story that you want to be, that you want to tell, definitely submit on there. And tell your friends. Yeah. Tell your family. Yeah. Tell everybody yeah. to check us out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because if you're already listening, then you already love the podcast, I'm hoping. So definitely help spread the word. And that's that's the biggest thing right now. Yeah. That's podcast. the biggest thing to plug. Yeah. Plug yeah. us. Okay. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you know somebody who is a queer storyteller who has a story, go ahead and like give them our info too. You know, we're looking for people all the time. We have great people lined up like yeah. we do, but we want to keep doing this. So mm -hmm. we need to keep lining more people up. Yeah. Just so all your friends sign up, you sign up your mom, your mom's mom. <laughs> we can do a generational <laughs> month. <laughs> oh. you, do you, your mom, your grandma, you. all of them. Everybody tell their own Four version. Four generations. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if you have ideas or types of stories you want to hear, let us know. Um, every episode's been so different, and yeah. we love that, and we love all of the you know, different viewpoints and experiences mm -hmm. that we've been able to bring onto the podcast. Yeah. It's yeah. been refreshing and a learning experience with every episode that we hear, so mm -hmm. we want to just keep that rolling. Yeah. Thank you.
thank you cool so thank you for sharing your story and we hope to hear more of you later (laughs) (laughs) on the next episode on the beyond course yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right you all see you later bye bye don't forget to follow us on facebook and instagram at beyond queer stories also check out the creator of our podcast music b studwell she's an incredible queer artist from dc and you can check out her music at bstudwell.com if you're listening to us on itunes don't forget to rate us so others will be able to find our podcast talk Talk to you all all next week. week next time on beyond queer stories because i didn't think there was anything more in my life I didn't think anything more or better was going to come up. I thought this is exactly what I deserved. I thought this is the best it was going to get. And then after a year of that, I thought, this can't be the best.